Welcome to Final Fantasy Weekly. I'm Drew Kreisman. And I'm Ira Kreisman. And on this episode, we will be discussing the opera of Final Fantasy VI. We'll be discussing the events around it, to be sure, as well. But this is going to be a little bit uh, of a different episode of the podcast. Uh, I suppose, in a way, if nothing else, one thing we're consistent about, it's breaking our own rules that we made up. Uh, but uh, we're actually going to do a little bit more of an all-encompassing thing here where we discuss pretty much every element of this segment of the game where we won't be going back over the music when we get to the specific music episode later because this is so music heavy it just felt weird to try to separate those two conversations so we're going to dive really heavily into one of our favorite moments i'm sure one of everybody's favorite moments in the history of the final fantasy series something that's very well known this play within a play the opera of Final Fantasy VI. We'll do a little more setting that up and, and getting into what this is and why it's interesting uh, as well when we get there. But first, we do have to get there. Uh, when last we left our heroes, they had just been shocked by a giant exposition dump from Zeus. I mean, Ramu, or some people say Rama. Or the, the, uh -huh. the, that's another shocked. one. A, yeah, yeah. I, I saw it. I, we we all heard you. We got it. Okay. All right. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> and uh, in the city of Zozo, where it constantly rains and everybody lies, they get this very important speech uh, about what's going on behind the scenes with the, as it turns out, ongoing war between the espers and the humans and what the Empire is doing to try to drain the magical power from the espers and our heroes, kind of as they're leaving Zozo, walking down the stairs through the rain, it's another one of these fun scenes where they're having a conversation as they're all leaving an area, kind of as they were doing as they went up to defend Tritoch in right. Narsh and decide, yes, this is what we have to do. We have to help our friend in addition to helping the espers. But there's a few other things along the way that are stopping them from doing that that they're uh, going to need to tackle first. Yeah, uh, in this walk and talk, I think it's particularly noteworthy that they ask Celeste what she knows about the Magitech research facility. And it sort of seems like she's not saying it all, but she does say that she was asleep when they augmented her as a child. One of the cool things about that, again, like I love that everything in this game just fits so well together. And that's a good bit of character development of Celeste, a good bit of exposition through dialogue as well. We learn a little bit about her history, and it's perfectly natural that it would be the topic of conversation where you could have maybe clunkily slipped it in somewhere else. You could have been like, and by the way, I'm a magitechly trained and was experimented on as a kid, and here's my sad story. But it's like, no, they're, they need specific information. She might know. They know she was a general in the Empire, so it makes sense that they would want to pick her brain for some information in this point. And it's just a, a good bit of both moving the plot forward and developing your character with one very simple bit of Ted Woolsey dialogue. So like before, we need to split our party into two groups. Uh, two of our characters will go back north to Narsh to help keep the Esper safe, to help keep Bannon safe, and so on. Uh, they don't really get any storyline 
significance here. You have to take Celeste and you have to take Locke. And then the other two are up to you. So they're trying to figure out how we're going to get to the Imperial Continent because no boats go there. Because the, the Imperial Continent has cut itself off from everybody else. That's a, a common theme, one that I really like that I don't think it's as well noticed in our Empires versus Rebels tropes is the uh, segmenting off of the Empire. They obviously almost always become very, very defensive and, and have this secluded, whether it's the Death Star or you know the Tower of Doom or uh, whatever it may be. Uh, but one that I thought of as we were, we were doing this here is uh, the movie In Time, sci-fi flick starring Justin Timberlake of all people it's actually pretty great and it, and it's all about the the people that their lives you know they exist on a certain amount of time they don't get money if you just keep getting time you can kind of live forever so the people who have a whole bunch of time live far away from the people that don't because the desperate people that your empire is making poor they're the ones most likely to try to come and get the riches the gains of your empire and so that they would have their own island that no boats go to i think is a nice interpretation of that trope so a couple things happen before we leave Zozo. One of them is that Celeste asks Locke why he specifically volunteered to go on this mission with her to the Empire. And Locke's response is, well, you know, there might be treasure in the Empire. I think we are meant to interpret that as Locke is substituting Celeste for Rachel in a way. You know, I, I couldn't protect her. I promised to protect you. Of course I'm going with you. And I think that's probably correct. But I also wonder if now that Locke knows that there are espers in the Empire, maybe he thinks he can find the Phoenix there or maybe the Phoenix Magicite there. And so I wonder if there's a little bit of uh, selfishness in this decision. It's not just about going to protect Celeste. It's also about going to uh, attempt to keep his promise to Rachel. Yeah. And again, a multi-layered you know, it's, it seems simple on the surface, and I don't know that we're ever given a clear answer to that, and I think it would be very human. I don't think you have to question the purity of Locke's intentions either way. He may well be a bit torn in this moment. He hasn't known Celeste that long. They've been through a couple of things together here, but again, it's perfect timing for this dilemma to come up furthering in the plot when we just got the Forever Rachel story right before heading to Zozo. We also get one of those moments where uh, the screen goes blank and someone will explain something to you. Instead of Mog or a or an imp, it's a ghost, and they explain how magic sight and, and learning magic works. And we'll talk about that more when we get to the gameplay episodes. But we head back to Jador, because Jador is full of rich people. Uh, speaking of people who've pushed people off, they seem to have pushed all the poor people off to Zozo. That's why they right. get their own town. And then apparently all poor people lie, which is an odd commentary. Yeah. But either way, we go back to Jador, which is very class conscious and stratified. And we go all the way up to the rich man's house, Alzer. Uh, we talked about this a little bit last time. He's got an art museum in his own, or an, an art gallery, I guess, in his house. And the impresario of the opera house is here, which sort of implies that Alzer might be a, a patron of the arts, which is not a bad way to spend your money if you've got a lot. The impresario is here. We don't actually uh, meet Alzer. We just see that the impresario is in a tizzy. Uh, we ta there's another guy here Good who word. will. <laughs> Thank you. It's in a tizzy. <laughs> Having a there's day. There's another uh, another guy here who will comment that Celeste looks an awful like 
an awful lot like Maria, the famous opera singer. And then the impresario will notice that also, uh, at first thinking she is Maria, uh, but then obviously uh, she's not, and he, and he goes off furthering his tizzy, I suppose, and accidentally drops a letter. Now, of course, we are main characters in a Final Fantasy game, so we pick up the letter. The letter <laughs> says, yeah. yeah, like, pff, privacy? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Just All walk into people's houses and start asking yeah. them about their history, you know. Yeah, <laughs> looking in their pots and cabinets and stuff. Right. And Chrono Trigger, there's a time portal in those people's That's right, cabinet. in one of the in those goblins, the mystics cabinet. <laughs> right. And they're totally chill about it too. Just like, cool. yeah, whatever. Yeah, whatever you need to. The letter says, Maria, I want you for my wife. I'm coming for you. Signed, the wandering gambler. Yeah, that's that's dope. And again, one of my favorite things is almost every character in this game is introduced before they're introduced. And it happens here again with one of our favorites, probably one of your very first favorites. It's the first time I can recall you particularly gravitating toward a specific character in Setzer. Gabaini? Gabaini, I think, yeah. A blackjack-playing, world-traveling, casino-dwelling, free spirit. And, and you're right, I've always really liked Setzer. I think it's partly the look, I think it's partly that I also really liked Gambit from the X-Men, and, and Setzer also throws playing cards. I liked the gambling aspect of his, of his ability, even though you could, because really you could kind of game it a little bit, which is part of the point of playing a game, is figuring out the system. I sort of liked his free-thinking, vagabond, wanderlusty attitude. Though I gotta say, between Edgar hitting on every woman he sees and Locke keeping his nearly dead girlfriend in suspended animation, being introduced to this character by him promising to kidnap a woman and make her his wife is a bit... Yeah. Uh, cre- creepy? Right. I don't know. Yes. But I... I mean, we already talked about Edgar. I do feel like Locke is coming from a a good place. And I've been wondering about Setzer. Like, I don't want to just try to justify his actions, but it sort of seems to me that Setzer might know Maria. Like, I I get the impression he has an already established or, or, or an established personal relationship with her. And that it's not so much about, I'm going to kidnap you, as I'm going to show up at the climax of your performance in front of everybody, profess my love for you, and we're going to elope. Right. And that's, that's sort of the impression I got as a kid, and I didn't realize how creepy it was to, to write this letter until I got older. So I don't know. Am I, am I going too far to try to justify Setzer's actions? No, I, you know, I don't know. I think there's... A couple of different ways, though, that you could interpret it and kind of like we did with Edgar, not necessarily arrive at the conclusion that Setzer is a total dirtbag or that the creators of Final Fantasy VI in any way endorse 
what on the surface appears to be some troubling behavior getting you know without rehashing all the stuff about the weird times and when it was common for men to feel like they did have a certain amount of ownership not that it's okay but it would maybe be commonplace um i i think your interpretations are interesting i i like the notion that yeah i think if we were again remaking this for a modern time i would want to retell it in your way and make it clear that there was some kind of previous relationship and yes he is he's going to steal her away if it's you know kidnap no 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 steal her away in a moment of romantic as you said very public display of affection i like that interpretation of it i think there's another way you could go with it that would be less disney uh happy and a little more interesting perhaps which is that as we've just talking about there's a a big separation here between classes in this world the haves and the have-nots and setzer is very much a have in fact as we're about to find out in a key plot point he owns the world's only airship and so literally can kind of feel like he's above everyone else and we discussed at the very beginning one of our main themes of this game is about found family maybe part of Setzer's story arc is that when he was a loner and we'll learn more about his history and why he's such a loner later on but with all this money and he can literally just live away from and above other people maybe he doesn't have that much empathy maybe he did intend to capture maria and it's not until he meets our warriors of light that he realizes the selfishness of his ways and and finds a family that teaches him to care about others all right so yeah like you were saying we we find out uh after there's another guy here and someone says who's the wandering gambler and the guy goes you born on a farm son like, right. dude, all right. <laughs> anyway, so uh, he explains that Setzer, the wandering gambler, is the owner of the world's only airship. And our characters say, aha, we can use this airship to fly to the Imperial Continent, to the, all the way to the capital of Vector, and, and we, we can then we can get into the Magitech Research Facility. So this man and his plots, we're going to make them our plots. We will go to the opera house and we will talk to Setzer and figure out what to do next and and use his airship. So that seems like it could not at all go wrong. (laughs) I do have a a couple of questions before we get to the opera house. One, why does the opera house have its own mark on the world map? Why is it not in Jador? Is it it its own town? Is it just that massive of a building? Why does Maria share a name with the character of Maria. And also, (laughs) is this the first instance of fiction in Final Fantasy? Uh, I I know, so I don't know that there are any answers to any of these. I do kind of like the idea that the Opera House sort of functions as its own miniature town or city-state or something. I think that's a cool idea. Yeah, Uh, I think it doesn't especially matter that both the character and the actress have the same name. Though I do think it's, I, th- I think that's for sake of ease in telling this story. Yeah. And in Final Fantasy, there have been all sorts of legends and history and folklore and whatnot, and and there has been like music, like we they play music in in Final Fantasy V. Right. We talked there, about know, diegetic dancing. music. We did that whole thing. Yeah. 
But I think this is the first instance of a piece of fiction in Final Fantasy. I think you're probably right, yeah. Not the last one. No, no. Uh, and, and so long as you don't consider mythology to be fiction. Right, legends and, and yeah, those kinds of things. No, I, I, I think, or what you might call a contemporary. Sure. Yeah, this is clearly presented as a play that the people of this world or an opera that the people of this world would be going to see as something that's new. And again, it fits in with the aesthetic of the, the steampunk and going to big opera houses and seeing productions with giant gowns and full orchestras is something that people were doing in our world around the, the kind of time that, that Final Fantasy VI is sort of mimicking here. And so, yeah, it's very much presented as this we don't get the the sense of anyone having written this opera in the world. They don't talk about that. I think that would be an interesting thing to explore sure. again in a remake or something is, is meet the creator of this. But obviously the creator of the opera is Nobuo Uematsu. Right, <laughs> right. So, yeah, I think that's neat. I also want to draw a parallel between this and uh, Star Wars Episode uh, Eight. I think, where they go to the, the big gambling hall. And there's all the so you know there's this big fight between the vestiges of the empire and the and the rebellion, right? But here are these people who are just high class people gambling, having a good time, and and so I, I think that's an interesting parallel to Final Fantasy VI. Here's this big fight, the empire is running over the world, but here there are still people going to the opera, high class people, people with money. We already had the instance of the rich man in South Figaro capitulating to the empire pretty quickly. Right? right to to keep his money and power his his safe space as it were and here we have another example of that and i think that's really interesting especially when in star wars benicio del toro's character says to finn you know did you think they were only selling to the bad guys right and just to point out another couple of quick examples that just came to mind of play within a play or story within a story that I really enjoy. Obviously, Final Fantasy IX begins with a play, and, and right. a, a, there's a, a play-acting troupe that is very important to the plot of that game that our main character belongs to, which is pretty cool. Even in Final Fantasy X-2, it's a little bit different because it's sure. rock performances, but there's kind of some of that there, but also just wanted to shout out an all-time great in Watchmen. There is a comic book within a comic book oh, that yeah. gets really fleshed out, actually. And and so I always think when someone tries to pull off this, this opera is not to the level of that depth. It's really just a one-off moment. They don't keep coming back right. to it the way they do in well, Watchmen, but... I, I it, think... It thematically plays a huge role throughout, right? right? Exactly. Its essence lingers, yes. So in Hamlet, famously, spoilers for Hamlet, uh, Hamlet, <laughs> Prince Come Hamlet on, puts on a show. Uh, he, he puts on a play to try to get his stepfather slash uncle and his mother to admit that they killed his father. And the whole thing is about how they, these people in the play did that exact thing. So the play, it, the play within the play in Hamlet itself isn't that important like he could have done any number of things to try to get them to admit to what they'd done. It does produce the very good line, the lady doth protest too much. But uh, other yes. than that, he could have done anything, right? But he chose to 
have this come through in the play to just further reinforce the parallels of these themes. So I think that the parallels of the themes in the opera in Final Fantasy VI echo throughout, especially in, in the characters of Locke and Celeste. Absolutely. So I want to do things just a little bit out of order. Uh, because I think we should talk about the opera without talking about the things around the opera too much, if we can help it. Sure. So we get to, I'm going to go through this pretty quickly. Stop me if there's something you want to focus on. But we get to the opera house. Locke convinces the impresario that because Celeste looks so much like Maria, she could stand in for Maria. And then when Setzer kidnaps her, he will be kidnapping a capable warrior instead of uh, an actor. Oh, also somewhere in here is where when that is first suggested to Celeste, she gives us the famous yeah. line about how she's a knight and not an yeah. opera floozy. Not an opera floozy. Yeah, that's, that's what happens right here. But after Which saying that, she... Which is a nice thing to say about opera singers, by the way. Right, right. And, and might give some hints to her uh, ideas about what class she is in as opposed to what class artists are in. But immediately after saying that, she goes right into the dressing room and starts getting ready. And we've talked a bit before about the roles of women versus the roles of men on adventures. And Final Fantasy, I think, does fall into some of these traps or goes along with some of the perhaps negative tropes that the women are healers. The women fight from the back lines. They're always, almost always archers, right? Uh, they're the caretakers. They're the gentler ones in general. Now, there are some exceptions. I think Ferris is one. And I think Ferris and Celeste parallel each other in that they are women in what would be typically a male role in Final Fantasy. Yeah. But in, in, in some ways, Celeste is going the other way here. And we've talked about this before, about how a character who has been raised to be strict and violent and militaristic is given an opportunity here to do something else, to do something artistic. Uh, so maybe she made the the opera floozy comment because she doesn't want people to think that what she would actually like to do is be able to sing and be pretty. I think you're 100% correct on that. And not only that, we, we talked before, we gave the spoiler right away about uh, Celeste originally supposed to be a, a spy on our returners here. And we just mentioned she wasn't especially forthcoming with information in the conversation just a moment ago, I think this moment is what turns her. I think this whole opera experience is what makes her finally decide. And I'm, I'm biased because I'm a musician <laughs> and right. a writer sometimes. And so, so as people who are particularly fond of artists, you know, I think once she unlocked that part of herself, uh, she realized she could never go back to being a fascist. Not that she was ever necessarily ideologically a fascist, but... But she was definitely on the fascist side. Right. Yeah. I, I like the commentary here, and in a way throughout Final Fantasy, I think they get better and better and better at it. Subverting the idea of what is typically a masculine and or feminine role, and even that those two ends of a dichotomy are that the dichotomy itself can be subverted that you can be you can fall anywhere on that line of what society says is masculine or feminine you don't have to conform to one or the other you could do 
both or neither or some, be somewhere in between. And, and all of those things can also be worthy and interesting. Uh, so you can be a military general who's cold as ice and also a brilliant singer and actor. I should have mentioned Loveless also from Final Fantasy VII. Oh, uh, shit, you're right. It's And it's not even like in it a ton, but it plays a huge... It's like in the background a lot, which is super oh, cool. Oh, yeah. It's all and over the posters. It, and it plays a huge role in uh, Crisis Core. In fact, one of the characters quotes from it a lot and reads a passage of it to Sephiroth in a favorite in a famous scene. Cool. I have not played Crisis Core. Oh, hey, since we're on the topic, we're not exactly a, a breaking news of the Final Fantasy World podcast, but is there anything about Final Fantasy that happened recently that you're excited about, Drew? You mean, did I almost have a complete full-body religious experience from the E3 presentation <laughs> of Final Fantasy VII Remake? Yes, I did. Yeah, yeah, I got a little teary-eyed. I, yeah, I had full-body shivers for about five straight minutes. It was almost too much. Like, I'm ready. I'm ready. So speaking of anticipated art, just a few more things before we get into it. All right. So she goes to practice. This should not work, but apparently she can sing. Ultros is here for some reason. The this giant purple octopus is pissed at our guys for having defeated him in the river and is going to jam up your opera. So the reason I said we're going to go a little bit out of order is because part of the opera will happen, and then we'll come back, and, and Locke will go check on Celeste before she has her big scene. And that's where we get a, a conversation between Celeste and Locke, and she's still kind of questioning... You know, why Why are you doing this? Why are you here? Why did you rescue me? And I think it's a little bit what you were saying. Like, this is where she's starting to turn, and she wants to get a read on Locke. Am I just a stand-in for the woman you were unable to save? Or do you maybe really see me as a person and, and an ally and, and, and a friend? And his response isn't... Like, she doesn't say that exactly. They're talking around the issue, right? And his response is also roundabout it's it's kind of it's like the line is that ribbon looks nice on you now what that means could be i think you're pretty but it could also be i believe in you you're going to do great it could also be i see you you're not just a general standing with the empire giving the salute i see you yeah. And I, I think I really like this moment, even though it's not explicit or maybe because it's not explicit. And in this scene, Locke blushes. Yeah, it's cute. It is cute. And then Celeste is like, I got to learn my lines, man. Get out of here. I like <laughs> yeah. that part, too. Again, as somebody who's done some performances, too, and knows what like pre-show anxiety is like, then there's also a point where you're like, dude, get out of here. <laughs> I got I got to get ready. And it sort of implies that she's been getting ready for a little while now. But it also sort of implies, because when she goes into the dressing room, she immediately starts singing the song, which suggests she might know the song already. Has she seen this opera before? Yeah, maybe Has it's been, a famous she, one, yeah. She's been listening to the musical on YouTube. She's been going to the Distant Worlds concerts. Right, right. All right. So we've done all the things around the opera except for the, the big fight at the end. So I think now we should talk about the opera as it happens, or at least as much of it as we get. Uh, because we don't get the whole show. We basically get Act 1.
West and the East are waging war. Draco, the West's great hero, thinks of his love, Maria. Is she safe? Is she waiting? And then we go right into Draco's song. And there's some things about this I want to talk about. I have wondered, is this meant to be uh, an historical piece? Are, are the West and the East meant to be like Figaro and Doma? Or is it meant to be fully fictional? You know, the, the West and the East of this fictional world? Or are, meant to, are they meant to be allegorical? The, the West in general, the East in, you know, these, just these different places. My guess is it's not meant to be historical. Because they could have easily written about a, a historical war between Figaro and Doma or Jador and Doma or something like that. And they didn't. It's just the West and the East. Yeah, I think it's supposed to be interpreted that way, that it's sort of a fictional conflict. It's also interesting, too, because the conflict in the world of Final Fantasy VI is more north and south. It's, you know, they the Empire continues to encroach north, which is kind of interesting. So, yeah, I think it's supposed to just be, uh, you know, or, or uh, Montague's Capulets. There are a lot of Romeo and Juliet parallels here, and so I think really by doing... East and West, like the jets and sharks, they might might as well gone. You know, I think it's it's kind of just meant to be interpreted that way. Sure, and uh, I don't think it's meant to be an Earth-related East and West. I don't think it's meant to be Asia versus Europe either, especially because neither Draco nor Prince Ralph, uh, the two male figures in this play, are especially European or Asian, I don't think. They don't strike me as trying to fit into any of those tropes. Yeah. I do want to point out that the is she waiting aspect of this introduction before Draco's song. In these stories of war, uh, in myth, legend, and folktale, oftentimes women are left behind because apparently women don't know how to fight, but we're subverting that trope here in Final Fantasy VI. Female characters... Wives are meant to wait for their husbands. So I'm thinking specifically of Penelope in the Odyssey. She waited for 20 years for Odysseus to come back. And not only was she faithful to her husband, but she held off the suitors in a variety of clever ways. And then, and then, when Odysseus gets back, he has the temerity to question her fidelity. After he slept with, who, Circe and and somebody else, yeah. and he, I, I, the sirens are so beautiful, and I want to hear them sing, even though it might ruin us all. Like, fuck you, buddy. What a <laughs> creep. I mean, god damn it, Odysseus. Now, I don't think Draco is meant to be like Odysseus, but a little bit about, you know, I hope she waits for me is, is I think, understandable. Yeah, I mean, there's also the other way. You know, there's poor Tom Hanks and Castaway, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Comes home, <laughs> you know. So, it, you know, the 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 opposite of that. But yeah, it, there's definitely this story, and and it's interesting because again, the play within the play has symbolically some of the same issues that I think this game is trying to address by having Terra and Celeste as central characters and making them both powerful and and addressing their inner conflict. That it's set in a world though where if it's going to be somewhat believable women are going to struggle with all of these kinds of 
built-in expectations of how they should behave. And just like the game itself, while this opera starts in a place where it sounds like Maria has no agency, she actually does a little bit here. Sure. And as we'll get to here in a bit, it's her castle that uh, that a lot of this is set in. So as the music is continuing behind him and the impresario has introduced the situation, we see Draco, Draco, depending on your accent, uh, <laughs> walking alone across a field, and he is suddenly accosted by three soldiers on chocobos who knock him down, presumably fatally wounding him. I think it's uh, pretty impressive that the opera house has live <laughs> chocobos. They can just trot out on stage whenever they want. Nice, nice special effects budget. I assume Owser's paying for that. That's, that's, that's thanks to his uh, benefactorness. Yeah, that, that, yeah, that's very impressive. Very impressive. And then I love here that Draco's reaction as he's lying face down in the mud is to lift up his head and sing to his true love a very musical thing to do yeah that that is what you see in musicals i this reminds me of and go with me here an american tale there is a part do you remember an american tale with five the mouse i already know that? where you're going with this where they sing to each other somewhere out oh, there yeah. beneath somewhere the out there the, the brother and yeah. sister who are separated sing to each other and it's and it's this duet, and it's adorable, and it's not quite what happens here in in the opera of Final Fantasy VI, but I think that trope that we could be thinking about each other even though we're not together is is important, is interesting. That that it's not that just because you are not with the people you want to be with doesn't mean that they're not thinking about you, that you're not thinking about them, that you can't take some comfort in their presence, even with them not being there. Yeah. It's also a nice parallel with Locke, who is holding on to love for Rachel, despite great distances, both in terms of physical distance and, of course, the whole amnesia coma tragedy they've been through. So here is Draco singing from the Distant Worlds production, the piece that more or less wraps up the opening of the four parts we get here of Final Fantasy VI's opera. next big scene is Maria's scene, or in our case, Celeste's scene. But Celeste is playing Maria, so there you go. The forces of the West fell. Maria's castle was taken. Prince Rolfs of the East took her hand by force, but she never stopped yearning for Draco. 
and there's a couple things there I want to point out. So it's Maria's castle, so which would suggest she's nobility. She's fallen for a soldier, perhaps of her retinue, uh, of her soldiers, I suppose, uh, which sort of parallels Edgar, like, hitting on his staff, but, uh, but perhaps a bit more romantic here. Uh, I do think it's interesting that Prince Rolfs of the East took Maria's hand by force, which is kind of what Setzer's trying to do. Right. And that she continues to resist in her own way. She doesn't have... Her only power is her nobility, her money, and that's been taken from her because the forces of the West have fallen. And... But her, her resistance is to continue to love the man she loved even though it's been presumably years he's almost certainly dead but she she is able to not forget him to not give in and uh, this is this is when we get the song yeah in a, a moment of despair in light of everything that you just mentioned she sort of climbs out to one of the high towers in her castle, very much like a Disney princess. Uh, it's a very balcony yeah. scene kind of scene. And I do love that in the game you have to, there's a little mechanic here where you've got to remember the right lines and a couple of steps and go up and do the right thing where she throws the flowers off the top of the balcony while she's singing this song. But it really is uh, just a gorgeous piece of music a melody that is timeless and classic. It actually is also the stand-in for Celeste's theme. It's played sometimes just on the piano really nicely or on bells, on the full strings. And yes, it's awfully sweet and quiet for a character who's pretty gruff and, and tough, as we've talked about. But this is the part of her that, you know, when she discovers this, and I know some people don't like this particular twist, but... You know, it's not like she stops being a badass either uh, from this moment. Right. I would suggest that her being able to acknowledge this part of herself makes her more badass. She is a general and a singer. She is a soldier and an artist. And I like that. I like that a lot. I think that Tara getting the marching song, Tara's theme is very clearly a march at the beginning, and it's got variations. But Tara getting the marching song and Celeste getting the the opera piece, the aria, is interesting. Because they're both they've both been put in this situation where they have to put their own feelings away and they're both trying to discover their feelings. Tara in a much more science fiction y kind of way. But that's what they're all doing. So I think Celeste being the the vector for which we hear the phrase, oh my hero. It's not that she can't fight for herself, but here these people have come along and shown her some amount of trust. It takes a little while from Cyan. They've shown her some, some friendliness. They've shown her that you don't have to be a fascist soldier. They, they've shown her that the Empire really is pretty frickin' awful. And so they, I think, are all... It's not just Locke who is her hero, right? I think they are for each other. The, the heroes they needed 
in this moment. Not, not the moment of the opera, but in the moment of this, this whole story, right? So the parallels of the opera are, we are stronger with each other, right? We're stronger, Maria is stronger with Draco and vice versa. Celeste is stronger with, with her friends. Yeah, there's another line in there. It's one of my favorites, and it is the name of the Black Mage's metal interpretation of this part of it, Darkness and Starlight. At one point in here, and, and you'll hear it when we play in a moment, she sings, I'm the darkness and you are the starlight. That's interesting inside the play in a play because Draco was the warrior and Maria was the one in waiting. But if you interpret that line through Celeste, she is had a life full of darkness and horror and violence And the starlight is, as you said, it's the light warriors. It's not just Locke. It's all of these people who are now supporting her in this moment, literally up in the rafters fighting for her. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, it's it's really quite beautiful. It's it's a big part of what makes it so memorable. And, And the lightness of it, too, after the big bombastic opening that we heard earlier and the very kind of European uh, pomp and circumstance of the opening act that we had, this taking a step back and, and very quiet, reflective, very sad performance from Maria in the Aria di Mezzo Caratere. So while she sings this piece, Maria is visited by a specter, a memory. Either way, it's a very good set of special effects from uh, the people at the Opera House. Again, nice budget on that. Thank you. Thanks to our sponsor, Rich Man Alzer. So she dances with Draco. I don't know 
like so we i think the audience of the opera is meant to presume that he is dead after the the attack by the chocobo mounted soldiers now we know that draco is not dead but maria doesn't so is this like mrs landingham in the west wing she's not she's like mrs landingham isn't there the president is using his memory of her as a sounding board for why for the decision he's going to make next is maria seeing just a, is she dancing with a memory I think so, I and actually I think it's meant to be understood as her coming to terms with leaving that life behind. She knows what's about to happen. She's going to have to be married off to this other person, and she doesn't want to just be miserable for the whole rest of her life. She wants to try to accept some of it, I think, but she's going to have one last dance with her, her true love, and it's really sad. And in another moment of special effects brilliance... The actor playing the memory of Draco transforms into a bouquet of flowers. Yeah. Which is really pretty cool. But I do have to wonder how they did that on stage. Magics. (laughs) Which Esper had to give their life for that special effect? Oh, Jesus. The Esper of special effects. Jubilee. (laughs) Jubilee, yeah. An an illusion, Esper. So Maria takes the bouquet of flowers. And she climbs the stairs. And in a parallel that we will talk about when we get to the world of ruin, she throws the bouquet from the top of the balcony. <sighs> Classic moment. Yeah. yeah. It's it, even in the S- Super Nintendo graphics. It is beautiful and, and touching and it. You know, I I get emotional just thinking about it now. Yeah, uh, and it there are about a million not, fan art sketches and paintings and drawings yes. of this moment, almost as many as the Eris moment in Final Fantasy VII. Like it's that breathtaking. Yeah, because it's less about the medium, it's less about the graphics and the, and the chip tunes, and more about the story they are telling. So this moment pays off. This moment works because of all the work they've done to set these people up together to this moment. And we'll continue to work throughout the game. And if I want to get perhaps overly interpretive, I could say that when Maria throws the flowers, she is saying goodbye and throwing away her old life and moving on to a new one. And so is Celeste. That is the moment. She throws away her old life from that second in a moment of acting, one of the realest moments of her life. She is no longer a general of the empire. Her moment of truth won't come for a while, but inside, I think she makes the change, the decision there. She doesn't want to be that person anymore. So a man I assume is Maria's chamberlain or, or chancellor finds her up here on the balcony where I imagine he has found her before and says, Prince Rolfs, is looking for a dance partner. Leave the past behind. Our kingdom is adopting the spirit of the East. Again, throw away your culture and adopt a new one. Right. If, if I could get a little interpretive here, assuming the artists are not as rich as people like Auser, I think that if we go back to that parallel to, uh, to Star Wars, this is an artist saying to rich people, we sympathize with Maria. Look at what has happened to Maria. She's one of you. She is a rich person. But look what happens when empires invade. 
Would you rather be on the side of Prince Rals, the invaders, like the Empire, or would you rather be on the side of Maria, who only wants to be with the person she loves? And artists have often gotten away with, you know, fools and jesters, political cartoonists, satirists, have often gotten away with speaking truth to power in this way because, well, it's just a story. Now, of course, it's not, but... I, I, again, we might be getting overly interpretive here. I might be getting overly interpretive here, but I would like to think that, you know, in our remake of Final Fantasy VI, this particular artist would be saying to the people in power, this is what happens. Are you going to let it happen? Right. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. Again, that's why it'd be fun to maybe meet the writer in the game to just further the analogy or maybe not maybe it's better left a little bit of a mystery but i think you're right i mean i think again that was on purpose and i don't think we're going out on a limb by saying final fantasy in general and final fantasy 6 in particular are anti-war uh, <laughs> clear messages right of war is bad and stuff right right So Maria goes with her advisor down to the celebration in the castle proper, and she dances with Prince Rals. And it, it looks like a you know a big dance scene, perhaps paralleling Final Fantasy VIII's big dance scene. Mm. Uh, I have actually I do think the dances are similar. Like I would have to go back and check, but there's a lot of spinning around each other in the Final Fantasy VI opera house dance scene, and I. Th- pretty sure there is in the final fantasy 8 scene also right no i think i think you're right about that yeah so uh they're dancing they're having a party and then suddenly draco rides in on another chocobo man they got choco i gotta imagine the stage manager for this show <laughs> is like i have to buff out the freaking stage you know i'm gonna put it on somebody else sure but like i gotta keep these chocobos fed and quiet backstage until it's time for them to come on I got to make sure they don't like poop on stage. I've got to clean up the stage. I got to like get the scratches from their from their talons out of the stage every night. Anyway, so he arrives, uh, and and the survivors of the West. That's how it's put. The survivors of the West attack, and and Prince, they, you know, singing. They don't say these lines, but it's uh, you know, Maria, I've come for you. And and Maria says, you know, I never lost faith, even though we just saw her throw away the bouquet up there. And then Prince Rawls is like, no, no, Maria's mine. We're going to be wed, uh, you know, tomorrow or whatever it is. Uh, and Draco says, listen here, buddy. And and Prince Rawls says, it is a duel. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> a great line and, and uh, a great piece of music, too, actually, because this third act here, which is called The Wedding, uh, the, the musical part of it, it is so perfectly too different very distinct things it's music that would be very proper for a dance and a wedding it's very formal very european uh, it reminds me a lot of the early stuff uh, that we talked about from final fantasies one two and three very renaissance and it would seem likely that uh, something uh, that's the turn of the century opera might be looking back on a period like the renaissance with some nostalgia and 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 you know drawing on that for a lot of its influences and then the other part of it is this very clear back and forth for the duel, this call and answer and all of these instruments having distinct voices that stand in for the characters in the original Super Nintendo when, you know, before they even had 
the ability to sing the actual lyrics when they just kind of had that that sound of vocals, but they clearly weren't words. You had a lot of the other instrumentation doing a lot of the heavy work, and that's why every little intricate part of this sounds so interesting is because each of the instruments is supposed to be a voice of a different character or a different element of the theme. And so when they start to have this back and forth duel, again, a very Romeo and Juliet, or I suppose in this particular case, it would be Romeo and Tybalt situation. Sure. uh, That he gets to sing out the line, then we duel. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Yes, good stuff. And since we already kind of gave you the the words that they're speaking here, let's actually play the Tour de Japan version of this part of it in Japanese because you can even hear, like, you don't need to know the specific words to get a sense of what's going on here. So we're about to the end of what we get to see of the opera. Now, they made it clear earlier on that Setzer was going to arrive at the height or or at the end of scene one. Though I think they really mean act one. Like, assuming this is a three-act play, this is the first act, which makes me wonder what else happens in this play. Yeah, yeah. where were they going from here? I don't know. It could be interesting. It's also another just, again, just so perfectly all fits together because we're pretty much coming up on the end of Act 1 of our story as well. And right. So right. That, that all works very nicely. And then there's this weird and interesting twist where they make it seem like Prince Rawls somewhere along the way actually fell in love with Maria. It does seem that way. And if you watch the, uh, the videos you can see on YouTube of some of these live performances, the guy singing for Prince Rawls looks sorely disappointed. (laughs) Right. Right. And which, you know, which is kind of sad, but at the same time, you invaded her castle and took her hand by force. Like I get you're upset. Maybe you actually fell for her. But you got to think about how she feels, too. There's a bit of an Agamemnon situation going on where it's like she wasn't really yours to begin with, but... Right, right. People aren't property, but face. Right. Um, but I do... Again, if we were going to flesh this out, I'd love one extra scene in here. I don't want to mess with it too much, but I'd love something that actually sells us on the notion that... Prince Rawls, that this was more of a political marriage, that maybe neither one of them specifically wanted it to go down this way because the climactic moment is so much more powerful if you believe that Rawls's intentions or, or feelings are in any way genuine because then it so perfectly parallels the Locke Celeste Rachel situation. If Rachel is gone... Draco was supposed to be gone. 
Then there's this other person that comes along. You were on opposite sides of a conflict, but you fell in love. And then the other person shows back up for just a moment and it tests the depth of your love. So I think it would be interesting because they both end up seeing the line, you know, I love you, oh Maria, oh Maria. You know, they're right. they neither one wants to let her go. So I think it would be pretty cool to to drive that point home a bit more because it makes the love triangle story that much stronger a parallel for Locke, who doesn't want to let go of his feelings for Rachel and feels like that would be betraying her to move on. In this particular case, we don't really, we've not been made to feel like Maria would in any way want to move on from Draco to this point. Like she was literally just crying and throwing flowers and stuff. Right. So we're about to leave the story of the opera, but before we do, my wife, who often sits here in the guest room with me while I'm recording my half of these conversations, just texted me to say, the chocobos have nail condoms like you can get for cats so they don't scratch the stage, clearly. So thank you for that, my love. <laughs> All right. She, uh, she did a lot of theater in high school, so I assume she knows of what she speaks. Sounds legit to me. <laughs> so that, that is basically the end of the opera, but it's not the end of the opera scene. So like I said, there's, there's a part in between the opera where Locke goes and checks on Celeste and they have their conversation. And when he comes out of her dressing room, he sees uh, a letter. And like, like I said, we pick up letters and read them. Uh, and this one is from Ultros and it says, I owe you one, so I'm going to jam up your play. And he runs up to tell the impresario. And then we can see in the rafters, there's a giant purple squid in the rafters. <laughs> and he's got a, a four-ton weight, I think, that he's about to drop on Celeste. So while uh, Rolfs and Draco are having their duel, our heroes sprint across the rafters and, and they fight rats. Oh, and he says this thing like, man, this is heavier than I thought. It's going to take me five minutes yeah. to push. Yeah. yeah, so it's a, Which, a time thing, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, which speaks to your thought about him being sort of a a fourth wall breaking character. Yeah, I'm more and more thinking that's true. And again, it would be difficult to do this in a movie or a television show or a modern interpretation and not have it come off wonky, but we could figure it out. I, I imagine there would be an, an interesting way to do this in, a, in an adaptation or a remake that, that kept his oddness like just having a talking purple squid <laughs> right be this just hanging out in the rafters of the occasional act yeah yeah how did he get there anyway yeah right right, right. Yeah. what is he doing here <laughs> why is he here yeah i i think it's fantastic and i would not want to lose that i think he he sort of reminds us that yes this is a game and i think that can be a, an interesting lens through which to understand all of these uh, stories or even a fantasy story you know this one has been a bit more grounded it's just you know the girl turned pink and flew off into the sunset earlier but in in a lot of ways up until the last couple of magical events the game has been pretty grounded and then it goes back to it here a little bit we're doing this play within a play thing so yeah it's nice to remind you like this is also still crazy fantasy don't worry right and it's also been a bit more grim and melodramatic as we've pointed out before even though those first five games had some dark moments, they were generally lighter 
this this one is less so. And now that I've said that out loud, this is the first one where they don't name the Light Warriors the Light Warriors. And it's a bit darker of a story. I don't know if that was on purpose, but it's an interesting uh, theme to pick up on. Yeah. So like I said, the, the play or what we get to see of the play is basically over. Because once you get to Ultros, everybody falls onto the stage. And the impresario comes on and he says, if the heroes are defeated, who will get the girl? And Locke has this moment where he, he gets up and he says, I, Locke, the greatest treasure adventurer, treasure adventurer, treasure hunter, the greatest treasure hunter in the world, will save Celeste. He calls her Celeste, not Maria. Yeah. yeah. And the crowd goes nuts. <laughs> and the impresario is like, this is awful. But then, but then Ultros, he gets to his tentacles i guess he he gets up and he says you cretin you are in the presence of octopus royalty you don't stand a chance against me and the crowd is loving it they weren't expecting this they've probably all seen you know the youtube videos they know how the story's supposed to go it's not supposed to go like this what is going on right. and the impresario's like well music <laughs> and <laughs> how about you <laughs> We fight uh, Ultros, and that's a lot of fun. They do still kind of do the uh, Maria is a prize to be won, uh, and Celeste doesn't get in on this fight, and I wish she would. I wish just to undercut that trope a little more, Celeste would get up and fight right there in her stage costume to help kick Ultros' butt. Do octopi have butts? Yeah. Whatever he's got. No, I'm with you. In our interpretation, there in that gorgeous ball gown that everyone likes to do sketches of, she'd be kicking some ass. Yeah. Draw her sword, cast her magic. Right? How cool would that be? And so we defeat Ultros. Uh, so sort of outside the play. The play outside the play. And basically everything's fine. And oh, wait. Another musical cue. Enter Setzer. He he drops down from the rafters and he grabs who he thinks is Maria and it's actually Celeste. And I have to assume that Celeste at this point is allowing herself to be kidnapped because this was the plan all along. That's why we did this, not so that we could have a big commentary on the haves and the haves-nots, not so we could have a big commentary on the dichotomies between East and West, darkness and starlight, not so we could have a beautiful scene where a general gets to sing an amazingly beautiful song and dramatically, symbolically throw roses off a balcony. We did this so that we can get an airship. That's the point. We want the airship. So Setzer arrives. He grabs Celeste. And then he, I don't. I assume there's like a grappling, there's like a Batman-style grappling hook because he zips back Tractor up into the man. rafters. <laughs> right. He just goes straight up. Uh, since he's not a dragoon, I assume he's not jumping. And then the impresario, because the show must go on. What fate lies in store for Maria? Find out in part two. But there is no part two. We never get anything more out of this story. Uh, capitalists <laughs> are always trying to sell something, though. <laughs> People don't make their money uh, on nothing. Uh, 
but yeah, and and then uh, that sort of closes out this segment of of the story. The play within a play has ended, and we sort of get back to the matters at hand. But um, yeah, what uh, what a bold move for Hironobu Sakaguchi. I think I've said this on the podcast before, but it's worth repeating at this particular moment to have the confidence to know he could go to Nobu Uematsu and say, I need you to write an opera. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no pressure, man. Just for this scene. I need the characters to go to an opera. They got to sing. There's this whole thing. And I need music for it that all works together and makes sense and thematically ties with the rest of the story. And boy, did he nail it. (laughs) Yeah, music that will enhance... Uh, characters throughout the rest of the game that will be stand out in all of Final Fantasy soundtracks for the last what twenty years, more than that, twenty five. Uh, it's it was it's a phenomenal task, and we've already talked about how the the music in this in this story is as much a character as any of the dialogue dialogue or the sprites or the actions or the narrative. And Celeste's theme and and the themes that run throughout the opera are are beautiful and they 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 enhance her character in in a variety of ways we've already talked about right there's something i was maybe going to save until we start the music episode but that'll be long enough and it's this parallel about uh, peter and the wolf which is very famously taught to young children oftentimes so that you can get the handle on this character sounds like this instrument. The bird is a flute. You know, it's very simple. The main hero is a clarinet, mm-hmm. and the, you know, and, and it just sort of goes on down the line. And if that's kind of characterization through music 101, I would say that you know Star Wars is is like a college course in characterization through music, and Final Fantasy VI is a doctorate level of understanding how you sometimes even create characterization that otherwise wouldn't be there if the melody wasn't going that extra length to sell this entire moment. And Uematsu is a obviously a champion of characterization through music, but I, I think this score and this particular part of it stand out from all of that. The, these pieces of music continue to resonate and uh it's a there's a reason it's been interpreted in japanese english italian i'm sure there are versions of it in other languages but those are just the ones where there's been massive reproductions of those particular performances on the grand finale album tour de japan as we played the distant worlds and what's crazy about that is that none of those most of those do the the complete operas we've just gone through it but none of them contain my favorite interpretation of this piece of music that I didn't find until just a few years ago, and it's relatively recent, and I want to close out with it. So before I do, do you have any other further thoughts you'd like to share? It's a beautiful piece. It's a beautiful set piece. I've heard people, I've I've read people saying that it's a sidebar, a distraction, but I think that... uh, as as a play within a play, it, it it does its job in highlighting and enhancing the themes of Final Fantasy VI. We are each other's hero. 
And actually, uh, I'd like to forego our normal closing out. So please do all the stuff, the the social media stuff, and check out the Patreon and all that stuff, and listen next time. And and thank you, <laughs> because right, I, right. I, I'd really not to like to speak through or after what it is I'm about to play, uh, which is really just the final climax of the Aria di Mezzo Caratere by the live Swedish Radio Symphony Orchestra. And I'll, of course, draw particular attention to the vocals from Sabina Zwiecker. I hope I got close on that. Um, but I'd also like to close, believe it or not, with uh, a comment, the top comment on the Distant Worlds version of this. So a different version of it, but just about this piece of music, because I think it speaks to the longevity. I think it speaks to Uematsu's genius here. And I think it just sums it up nicely. So... Two years ago, someone named Darcy Bono, thanks for the fantastic quote, wrote, If you told somebody that this is from the English translation of a famous Italian opera, they would probably believe you. If you told them it was derived from an early 90s RPG for the Super Nintendo, they probably wouldn't. 